Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for listening to Milk Street Radio. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to get our recipes, to stream our television show, or to get our latest cookbooks. Here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. The Devil Wears Prada chronicled the world of Vogue magazine's Anna Wintour. Another Condé Nast magazine, Gourmet, offers a similar but a more tragic story, from its heyday to its closing in 2009. Today, we chat with Gourmet's final editor-in-chief, Ruth Reichel, about the magazine's rise and fall. Closing up was not only emotional, but also just physically complicated. And someone said, how long do we have? And Sai said, oh, it's immaterial. And we all heaved a sigh of relief because we thought, oh, this is going to be slow. You know, we'll have time. And he said, your key cards will work today and tomorrow until five o'clock. And that was it. Also coming up, Alex I News on how to make a full-blown meal in a hotel room. And we share our new favorite dessert, mini almond cakes with spiced chocolate. But first, we hear from reporter Amy Gutman about her visit to a food truck in Berlin, where Egyptian expat Mohammed Radwan is bringing Cairo's favorite street food to Germany. Amy, how are you? I'm well, Chris. How are you doing? Good. Uh, So this is a story about an Egyptian engineer who ends up in Berlin after an interesting career and now owns and operates a food truck called Cairo Koshery. And what is Koshery? Let's start with that. Well, Koshery is this classic Egyptian dish. It's made with pasta, it's made with rice, it's made with chickpeas and lentils and fried onions. It's a very inexpensive dish. It's a street dish, but it's also a dish that people associate with their mothers, you know, and nobody makes it quite like their moms do. So I don't know that much about the history of this dish, but I know the British brought something similar. It was mostly rice and lentils from India to Egypt. So then what happens? 
Right. And and actually, that makes a lot of sense, because if you think about it, the Brits, particularly back then, had a very bland palate. So they wouldn't have thought to add things like garlic and onions. Those things were added when the dish came to Egypt. There was a bit of an Italian influence, too, as you can imagine, with the pasta. But the Egyptians added the onions, the chickpeas, the garlic, and of course, the tomato sauce was, was later added, too. So let's talk about this guy, Mohammed Radwan. He didn't start out in the food business. He had a really interesting background. So what's his story? Well, he had been in the States. His family had been living there. He went to university there to become an engineer. Uh, And then he decided to go to Egypt to work as an engineer and is now in Berlin um, working as an entrepreneur with his food cart selling Cairo koshery. I started Cairo Kushri because I thought, well, you know what? There isn't a lot of Egyptian representation here in Berlin culturally, and specifically Kushri, which really is an iconic symbol for not just Egyptian cuisine, but Egypt in general. And so I thought, you know what? I'm going to do this, something new here, and I'm going to do it in my own way. And it is a lot of work. I mean, he, he, you know, he talks about the fact that he's the first one there at, you know, where these food trucks uh, congregate and the last one to leave. Yeah, so kushiri is a really intensive dish to make. I mean, you're, you're boiling five ingredients in volume in a very tight space. It's, it gets really tricky. But, it, but it's not all authentic. Uh, I, I read that he has a California version, a Greek version, a Moroccan version. So he's, he's playing around with a formula. He's not just doing the quote-unquote authentic Egyptian version, right? Right, and that's also why it's so labor-intensive, right? I mean, you know, it's not like he's just doing the traditional. He takes this attitude that, you know, adapt or die. And he feels that this is a dish that has already had uh, different culinary and cultural influences, um, you know, set upon it. So why not have a little fun? And for me, it's kind of like a, a blank canvas. And that blank canvas, yeah, is, is the rice, the noodles, the chickpeas, the lentils, the standard. And then you can just do whatever you want, right? And you just play around. And that's what, and that's what it's all about. It's, it's, it's fun for me and it's adventurous. And I'm, and I'm really crossing that red line, really instigating and provoking a lot of Egyptians, which is uh, something I really enjoy. It's fun <laughs> because... Uh, you know, I always told them, well, you know, if you look at uh, Tio Antonio in like Napoli in 1900 and you showed him the pizza of 2018, he would probably be upset too. And actually, he claims that the Germans are very responsive to these, let's say, alterations to the, to the dish. So, for example, the Moroccan one has a little bit of cinnamon in it and it has some dried fruit in it. You know, it has some Moroccan flavors to it. Well, he also has a German version, I guess, the Kreuzberg koshery, and they got spätzle <laughs> cheese and fried onions. So, uh, yeah, I guess there, you know, there, there is no line he will not cross in, in messing around or, or being creative with the basic recipe. So uh, what does the truck look like? The food truck has a great design to it. It's this beautiful, bright, royal blue, and it's got a bright yellow bicycle on it and a guy on the bicycle and just says in really simple, almost like news type, Cairo Koshri. And it's it's simple, it's effective, it's modern. 
Yeah, it was kind of uh, this uh, vision I had where I'm just going to come and make this modern looking truck and I'm going to avoid what every other Egyptian restaurant in the world has done, which is some form of the pyramid, something about the Nile, something about King Tut. And that's all that's all we're, we're simplified to is like our past, our history. He said the whole point is that I wanted my food to be about adapting to modernity and taking this this classical dish and and refreshing it and mm. giving it an, an update. He said, why would I want to use pyramids to sell it? Yeah, he doesn't have a camel on the side of it, right? I mean, no camels. So, um, so did you taste the koshery? I did. I did. And luckily... Well, you got to tell us about that. So, <laughs> so how does this serve it? What does it look like? Uh, and what does it taste like? Well, luckily, I hadn't eaten for several hours because I knew what was coming. (laughs) I knew that it was going to be basically something you'd want to eat either before a big run or after a big run. And um, it was really interesting. It It was such an interesting blend of textures because the pasta were these sort of small round tubes paired with the rice, which is sort of a competing texture, paired with the chickpeas, which of course... They have a unique texture all their own. Paired with the lentils, I mean, you know, it's a lot of texture going on. Add the fried and crispy onions, and and there was a lot happening in the dish. Yeah, the only part of this I I find unusual is the tomato sauce. Yeah, it's it's not like a pizza sauce. You know, it's not thin. I would say it sort of reminded me of a vodka sauce without the dairy element. So it was meant not to bring spice to the dish, but more to deliver flavor. Here's what Muhammad told me. There's a salsa, this tomato paste that comes up on top of it. What they don't realize is, and you can see it when they take that first bite, is this unexpected joy, this full of flavors, because I add all of this cumin, which is very stereotypically Mediterranean and a key part of the kushri salsa. And so they don't expect it. They just expect some bland tomato sauce, like is in much most of their food here. And uh, and it, once it hits them, they're just in this complete, you know, joy. You just see their face uh, turn around and add it in shock, yeah. I love dishes that are, I mean, it's just a, it's a mongrel dish, right? It's from all different places, uh, which is also sometimes the best food. You know what's weird, Chris? It's the kind of dish that you don't think should work. You just don't think that these ingredients are really going to sing together, and yet they do. Amy, thank you so much. I, uh, I want to rush out and get a big bowl of kosher. <laughs> Good luck finding one. Thank you, Chris. That was reporter Amy Gutman. Right now, it's time to dig into your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television. Hi, Sarah. Hello, Chris. Do you want to take the first call? Yes, I do. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Barbara in Cypress, Texas. Hi, Barbara from Cypress, Texas. What can we help you with today? My question is about recipes that call for fresh mint. Okay. My mints have a base of spearmint oil or peppermint oil, except for my red-stemmed apple mint, which is the only mint that has both spearmint and peppermint oils. 
So I'm wondering, when a recipe calls for mint, what am I using? I think the short answer is spearmint. Yes, I would say so. Peppermint is stronger. Yeah, I think if you want a more assertive mint with a little bit of a bite, then you go for peppermint. If you want a, you know, a more mild mint, you go with spearmint. And I have not had a lot of experience with apple mint. Um, I, that's interesting that it's got both of the oils from the two different kinds. But I would say that would be somewhere in between. You know, I, I think in general you just want a mild mint for cooking. Yeah. You don't want anything too assertive because it'll just take over the dish. Right. Some of the mints are self-explanatory. My chocolate mint smells like dessert. Yes. The mojito mint, you know, clearly that's going to be Cuban. But some of the other varieties, you know. So wait, wait, wait. There's a mojito mint? I've never heard of that. No, come on. I think you made that up. No, it's a large-leafed mint with a beautiful green color that's very textured. I've got probably 12 varieties of mints. i got to back you up a second. You have like a dozen kinds of mint growing in your garden? Yes, I do. And And when um, a recipe calls for mint, I wind up standing in my garden just flummoxed, not knowing which one to use because they never tell me spearmint or peppermint. If I know spearmint or peppermint, then I can fine-tune from there. Well, I I knew a woman once who started with one cat and ended up with a dozen. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, is this like you ended up, you started with Uh someone gave you a spearmint plant and just sort of got out of control? I'm a gardener who's looking for recipes to make a case for why I need a dozen mints <laughs> or half a dozen <laughs> kinds of oregano or ten kinds of basil. Oh, I see. Um, so this isn't just mint. You, you're just an herb garden nut. Nut. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, well, exactly. since, Good. since Good you're, for you. I have to ask you a question then. Since you're an okay. herb garden gal, what is your all-time favorite unusual herb? Mm, good question. My favorite unusual one would be a barbecue rosemary because it grows big, straight, firm canes. And then I can put lamb on those. I use my rosemary as an actual skewer for lamb kebabs. For kebabs. Wow. Yes. Good for you. Well, Barbara, thank you for for sharing all that. You know, you could start a little um, blog of your own. I would love to. My meals all start out in the garden with a pair of scissors. I love that. That's a good one. And then I go find (laughs) something to do with it. I think we should name the barbecue rosemary Barbara Q. Ah, (laughs) I like that. I like that. There you go. Okay. Name will live on. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Laura. Hi, Laura. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from New Jersey. So I have a question on... Popovers. I tried to make them a couple of months ago. They're the probably simplest thing to make, flour, milk, egg. And I made them fine and they tasted well, but they didn't hold their shape. So I'm wondering what is the science behind getting them to like not flatten once you take them out of the oven? I have a few questions, popover questions. Um, did you let okay. the batter sit for at least half an hour before you baked it? No, okay. I did not, actually. Yeah. Let it sit for 30 minutes. Did you preheat the popover pan in the oven? I did not preheat the popover <laughs> pan in the two. oven, actually. I should stop now. Yeah, let the batter sit for 30 minutes, preheat your pan, and then okay. once you took them out of the oven, did you take them out of the popover pan right away and then pierce the bottom with a sharp paring knife? No. I, I got three out of three. <laughs> I went for it. No. Well, I risked everything. Okay. Yeah, l- let the batter sit, preheat the pan, and when they come out, don't let them sit in the pan. 
take them out on a cooling rack and then just punch a little hole in the bottom for the steam to escape. There's one last thing you could try. Slightly okay. overcooking them. You have to be careful because I don't like popovers that are too crispy. I like that really soft, you know, moist interior. Mm-hmm. Just give it two or three extra minutes, and that'll help set them better so they're less likely to collapse. All right. Now, okay. I'm, now I've run out of that. everything I know about popovers, and now it's Sarah, now, Sarah's turn. Now I'm going to make a little trouble. Oh, Lord. Okay. <laughs> so the recipe that I've made that always, always, always works is from Jordan Pond, which is on oh, Desert Island. They're fantastic. They're known for their popovers. They're absolutely huge. They tell you to make the batter the night before. Yeah, well, that's So good. I agree with Chris on that one. One of the things okay. I wanted to ask you, though, that's very important, do you have popover tins, or did you try to do it that's, in muffin tins? I did. I used muffin tins, and that was another oh, thing I was going to okay. ask you. Did I use a I wrong think, tin? I think that the popover tins are better because they're taller, so you have a okay. chance to develop a taller popover, which point. will have more structure. But if you got popover tins and followed the Jordan Pond recipe, which does have you resting them, it does not have you preheat them, but it does have you take the batter out so it's at least room temperature as well. So rest the batter first. We agree. Okay. Preheat the tins? Well, yes. Yes, preheat the tins. Okay. Okay. I'm going to agree with Chris, even though I've made them without preheating the tins. And and what about piercing the bottom with a paring knife? I don't think you have to. Okay. I've never pierce the bottom, you know, and they've stayed up pretty well. But I will say this, popovers like souffles are powered by the air and eggs, and what goes up must come down, and there's no way around it. Unless you bake it just a little longer. Which I agree with Chris about, but, you know, part of the joy of it is rushing it from the oven and eating it, you know, while it's still hot. And I agree with Chris that you want want that sort of gooey, ooey, gooey stuff in the middle. And use real popover pans, which are six cups in a set. Right. Right. And I think that will make a huge difference. Laura, give that a shot if you can remember anything we said, because I'm I'm confused. (laughs) Oh, no, I was taking notes. Oh, good. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, give us a ring, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? This is Tim from San Francisco. Tim, how can we help you? Well, I had a quick question about multiplying um, basically a rib recipe to maximize my oven space or my oven time. What I've done a couple times is braise some ribs for about three hours at about 250 degrees with any acid or liquid that I find in the fridge, apple juice, orange juice, soda. And then it usually takes about three hours, and then I broil them with some sauces, whatever I want to put on it. But one time I tried to do like four racks of ribs, and it seemed like it took forever till it was tender enough to actually throw on the grill. And I was curious, if I wanted to do like six racks of ribs at one time instead of just like one so that I can vacuum seal it and put it in the freezer for another time, what should I change about the recipe? Well, was there any difference between when you cooked the three racks and the four racks? It was the same kitchen, the same oven, anything change? There are some pretty big changes, actually. Um, <laughs> okay. The is between, don't, don't tell well, us or anything, was, Tim. <laughs> I was in a high altitude, actually, in Lake Tahoe. Uh, and so okay. I wasn't sure if that affected it. 
or if it was the fact that I multiplied it yeah. by like four or six times what I usually do. You said you're braising these, so it's in a liquid, a little bit of liquid. And at different right, exactly. altitudes, water obviously boils at a lower temperature at a higher altitude because mm-hmm. there's less ambient pressure. So regardless of how many ribs you were cooking, if you cook two ribs at sea level and two ribs at, let's say, a few thousand feet, it would take longer at altitude. Right. So altitude can slow your cooking by 20 or 30% if you're cooking in a liquid, like braising. It should not impact the dry roasting because the temperature of the air in the oven is not affected by altitude. But what about by putting maybe six cold racks of ribs in rather than just one yes, yes. cold rack of ribs? That will take a little more time because the heat of the oven will be absorbed by those cold ribs. But the oven's going to make that up pretty quickly because okay. uh, the thermostat goes on. It calls for more heat and brings it back up. If I did want to multiply, then I'd pretty much just do the same thing, and maybe it'll just take an extra hour. Yes. Yes. An extra hour would certainly do it. I agree. All right. I appreciate the advice. Yeah, thanks for calling. Thanks, guys. You're listening to Milstreet Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up, we chat with Ruth Reichel, the last editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine, also author of Save Me the Plums, my gourmet memoir. We'll be right back. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. You'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com slash tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. When Gourmet Magazine launched in 1941, it was the first food magazine in the United States. For the next 68 years, Gourmet was an icon, a bastion of fine dining and travel, that was rooted in the past but tried to change with the times. Today, we welcome Ruth Reichel, who served as Gourmet's editor-in-chief from 1999 
until it came to a close in 2009. Her new book is called Save Me the Plums, My Gourmet Memoir. Ruth, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Before we get to your experience at Gourmet, let's start with the old Gourmet in the 50s. Because I, I think there's something about the writing in that magazine that was very much of its time and exceptional in many ways. There was the um, lobster piece that you remembered so fondly. Maybe you could just set this up for us. Uh, what was the piece? Uh, when was it written? And why do you remember it? Okay, this this was a piece called Night of Lobster that was written by the Poet Laureate of Maine, Robert P. Tristram Coffin. And it was published in the mid-40s. And I first encountered it. My, my father was a book designer, and one of the things he did on weekends was go to old bookstores, used bookstores, and sort of wander around looking at books. And I would go along with him. And one day he brought me a pile of gourmets. And I found this story. And in many ways, it shaped the rest of my life, finding that story. Yeah, you know, I, I was really struck because it, it was really an energetic, in-your-face, poetic style. And uh, and so I understand why you fell in love with that kind of writing. And Gourmet was a place that certainly had writing. So l- l- let's now go to your time at Gourmet. Um, so you were offered this job by James Truman. Was he the creative director of Condé Nast? Um. His title was editorial director, and he was in charge of editorial of all, at that time, 19 Condé Nast magazines. So he offered you the job. You turned it down. And then um, Mr. Newhouse decided to (laughs) sway your decision at a lunch. So maybe you could just talk about Mr. Newhouse at the Trattoria. And, and, And we should just describe who Cy Newhouse is. Cy Newhouse was a very eccentric billionaire. His father had originally bought Condé Nast as a bauble for his wife's birthday in the 50s. But he had a yen to be in the magazine business. And at that time, you know, he owned The New Yorker and Vogue and GQ and lots of very high-end magazines. And so I go off to lunch with him, having absolutely no idea what to expect. And here is this man who is dressed, Cy was almost always dressed in a sort of green-gray sweatshirt. He was absolutely not what I expected. And the first thing he asked me is what I think of the recipes. I am deeply disappointed (laughs) because I wanted a very high-level conversation. And I finally venture that I think they're a bit lifted pinky. And I said, well, you know, they're complicated. And he said, exactly. That's what my cook tells me. (laughs) And and (laughs) I said, and I said, and that's the problem. I mean, (laughs) you know, who has cooks these days? Uh Oh. And then I realized that. That was the um, wrong thing to say. That was probably the wrong thing to say. So he he also, you're in an Italian restaurant and he refused to eat anything with garlic in it, I believe. Yes, the waiter brings out this platter of antipasti and Sai's nose twitches and he says, is there garlic in there? And the waiter says very proudly, yes, sir. And 
Sai waves his hand regally and says, take it away. I cannot eat garlic. And the waiter, I watched him as he went, and he stood outside the swinging doors of the kitchen um, looking so dejected, and I knew that he was afraid to go in and face the wrath of the chef who was going to say, you know, who does he think he is? This is an Italian restaurant. Um, but then later, as the meal goes on, at one point he starts telling me about the wonderful Condé Nast cafeteria. And I said, will there be garlic in the cafeteria? And so I looked at me as if I had said something remarkably stupid. And he said, of course not. I have stipulated that no garlic will ever be served in the Condé Nast cafeteria. And I just thought, Boy, I really don't want this job. This is one strange man. Now, now, after that lunch, he asked if you wanted a lift, and you said, no, I'll take the subway. I don't think he liked that response. No. I mean, he looked, he looked appalled. You can't take the subway. <laughs> and, you know, he insisted that I get in his car. And finally, I just blurted out, why did you ask me to lunch? And he then sort of let on that he had read everything I'd ever written. And he said he thought I would make a very good editor-in-chief for Gourmet. And I realized that he was a man who was used to getting his own way. (laughs) And the very fact that I didn't want that job made it interesting to him. Well, he got... You both got what you wanted, though, right? We did. And... You know, the thing that won me over was, you know, he really said, you know, I, all I want you to do is make a great magazine, and I, you know, I, I will not meddle. And the remarkable thing is he really didn't. Um, what's a Yaffe? <laughs> it's, um, it was something that uh, Mr. McCausland, who started the magazine in 1941, thought that it would be great if people could write in and ask for recipes they had had in restaurants. It was called You Asked For It, which was shortened to Yaffe in gourmet speak. And the secret of the Yaffe's is that chefs rarely write good recipes, so they had to completely redo every Yaffe that came in. (laughs) Of course. You also did some pretty crazy things. You did David Foster Wallace going to a Maine Lobster Festival and writing a piece that was not really about the sumptuous taste of the food. I mean, David Foster Wallace, um, the late David Foster Wallace, was one of the great contemporary American writers, and I tried to get as many great writers as we could. But we had a hard time finding something that DFW was willing to do, and finally he agreed to go to the Maine Lobster Festival. And the piece comes in, and I could never in a million years have imagined that he would choose to write a piece about literally the the ethics of eating is, is what it comes down to. I mean, lobsters are the only food that we bring alive into our kitchens and kill ourselves. And he goes into a whole meditation on, you know, is it 
correct for us to kill sentient beings um, purely for our gustatory pleasure. And the piece is brilliant. And I read it and thought, we have to publish this, but oh my God, people are going to cancel their subscriptions in droves. And we published that in 2004, and it was a real lesson to me because despite my fears, two people wrote in to cancel their subscriptions, and literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of letters came in applauding Hmm. the decision to publish this letter. And I realized that the worst thing you can do as an editor is underestimate your audience. You were a very close friend of Marion Cunningham, who uh, rewrote the Fanny Farmer books in the early 70s. And she always described you to me as being the hippie who used to buy her clothes at the secondhand clothing shops. And then you end up at the LA Times, the New York Times, and then at this job. So could you just describe how an editor at Condé Nast, uh, what that life was like? Okay, well, you know, I mean, Marion's description was absolutely correct. I mean, I lived in a commune in Berkeley for 10 years. And, you know, when the salary was shown to me, I was, what? I mean, I literally didn't know that journalists made that kind of money. And it came with virtually everything. So as an editor-in-chief, you had a clothing allowance. You had a car as well as a driver, which was garaged for you. And, you know, should you be so inclined, hair and makeup people would show up at your house every morning and fluff you for the day. (laughs) Um, I knew that I was really only ever going to be a visitor in this land because I knew eventually, I mean, eventually I was going to go back to real life. What I will say is that after I'd been there for a couple of years, I suddenly thought, you know, I'm... I'm being ridiculous. I should just enjoy this. And, you know, one of the great moments for me is we decided to do a Paris issue. And my wonderful managing editor, who saved my life on a daily basis, said, you know, it would be really good for morale if we just, instead of hiring freelancers to work on this, if we just, the whole staff goes to Paris. So the entire staff went to Paris to write this issue. <laughs> That'd be good for morale, and, you know, yeah. <laughs> that's very good for morale. Yeah. You know, the cooks rented this fabulous apartment on the Ile Saint-Louis. And, you know, every morning they went to the markets and they cooked all day. And then at night they went to restaurants to get inspiration. So let's talk about the end. Um, when Gourmet was shut down, you went to a meeting uh, in Sai Newhouse, was there. Could you just describe what happened? Yeah, it it was um, it was incredible because I was I was on book tour for the second gourmet cookbook and I was asked to come back to New York. I mean, I I knew it wasn't going to be good. I mean, I didn't think they were asking me to come back to tell me what a great job I was doing. And um, we were all called into the conference room at ten in the morning, and so I said, um, you know, after much thought, we have decided to close Gourmet. And none of us could believe it. I mean, it was just a world without Gourmet was unimaginable. 
you know, certainly I think all of us had, you know, envisioned the possibility that we would be fired, that the staff would be reduced. But closing the magazine had never occurred to any of us. And all he said was, it's very sad. And that, you know, they, it's a privately held company. They didn't have to explain it to anyone, and they never did. But, but then you thought for just a second that it might occur more slowly, right? Yes, yes. And, but I, it didn't. Yes. I mean, there were, there, somebody shouted, you know, how long do we have? I mean, after all, I mean, there were people, many people on the staff who had literally worked at Gourmet for their entire careers. And so, you know, closing up was not only emotional, but also just physically complicated. And someone said, how long do we have? And Sai said, oh, it's immaterial. And we all heaved a sigh of relief because we thought, oh, this is going to be slow. You know, we'll have time. And he said, you know, your, your key cards will um, work today and tomorrow until 5 o'clock. Jeez. <laughs> that was it. Thanks a lot. <laughs> um. The tagline of Gourmet was The Good Life. Is that right? The magazine of good living. Good living. Um, How would you define that term in the original Gourmet magazine? And today, if you restarted Gourmet, how would you redefine the magazine of good living? What, What is good living then and what is it now? Okay, well, I will tell you, Gourmet was started by Mr. McCausland basically for rich white men. And... Good living to them meant, you know, being a gourmand, traveling um, in high style, eating in fine restaurants. Um, And when I was talking to James Truman, I mean, that was one of the things I initially said to him. You know, my idea of good living is very different than that notion and, you know, I believe that eating is an ethical act. And so if we're talking about good living, we are including all of that. We're including the life of the mind. We're including um, morals. And I think that that's where we are in food today. I think we have very much redefined the notion of what good living means. And, you know, it means living in a world where everybody has access to good food, good, healthy food. Uh, Ruth Reichel, thank you so much for being on Mill Street. It's really been my pleasure. This was really fun. Thank you. That was Ruth Reichel. Her new book is called Save Me the Plums, My Gourmet Memoir. Gourmet is, in part, the story of the privileged world of New York media. But gourmet was also a bellwether for how food and cooking had changed over the last half century from the privileged, well-heeled gourmets of Park Avenue to the eateries of Harlem, Queens, and Brooklyn, from French food to street food, from Le Cirque to the best ramen joint in the five boroughs. And Ruth Reichel, former hippie who used to buy her clothes at secondhand stores, was a pretty smart choice to usher gourmet into this new century. Her story is a mix of big expense accounts married to a dedication to art, good writing, storytelling, and of course, creative vision. Now, for some, that may sound like a playground for the rich, but Mozart, Leonardo, and Michelangelo were all supported by popes and bankers. And I say, that's money well spent.
Right now, it's time to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, mini almond cakes with spiced chocolate. Catherine, how are you? I'm good, Chris. Uh, today, we're going to play with our food. We're going to take a classic French patisserie, which is a financier. It's a little cylinder. It's a baked cylinder. It's like a little cake. Uh, maybe it's a, a two-biter. Uh, it's crisp on the outside, chewy on the inside, often made with almonds. And it's pretty sweet, but we decided to milk street them. We did, Chris. So we love how in a traditional version, you have those deep nutty notes from the brown butter and the fruity almond flavor. But in order to switch that up a little bit, we used the flavors of Mexican hot chocolate. So we actually added chipotle, cocoa powder, and cinnamon, which we brown in butter to sort of bloom and release the flavors. So that really changes up the flavor profile. And then we add a splash of rum for a little bit of an extra kick. So how do you make this? You whip egg whites? Is that the first step? Well, Chris, we start by whipping our egg whites. And you don't want to over whip them here. You want them to be soft peaks, and then we mix that into the dry ingredients. So the three components are whipped egg whites, a spiced brown butter, and then dry ingredients, which include almond flour, right? Yes, almond flour and some all-purpose flour. Okay, and that goes into muffin tins, bake them, what, 10 minutes or so? 10 minutes, and then you just let them sit for five more minutes, and they crisp up on the outside and stay really nice and tender on the inside. So we played with our food. We started with a French financier, added some Mexican spices to it and have something crispy, chewy, and utterly unique. Thank you, Catherine. Thanks, Chris. You can find the recipe for mini almond cakes with spiced chocolate at 177milkstreet.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up, we get a lesson in hotel room cooking from Alex iNews. That in just a moment. This is Mostly Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for Sarah Malt and I to answer a few more of your culinary questions. Sarah, let's take a few more calls. Let's do it. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, uh, my name is Lori. Hi, Lori. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Well, we'll see if we can answer your question. That always... That, then we'll feel That good. cheers me right up. Then we'll be very <laughs> good. Okay. So, um, when I was growing up, in the early 60s, my grandmother and mother used to take me regularly to a luncheonette. I always ordered waffles, and they had a tangy, almost sharp taste, like a bite to them. And I have been trying to reproduce that taste for most of my adult life, and I cannot do it. I mean, the obvious question, but I know you've already gone there, is buttermilk. You've tried buttermilk? I've tried buttermilk. I've tried yeasted waffles. I've hmm. tried, someone recommended malt, right. which I tried. But it had almost a bite to it that I cannot recreate. There's one thing you haven't mentioned, which is the world's most difficult waffle recipe, which is sourdough. Ah. Now, sourdough would have that tang. Um, I, I don't think... It, a place like that would I bother either. making sourdough waffles. I think that's kind of crazy. Yeah. Maybe they made waffles out of the milk that it soured. Like sour oh. milk was a typical recipe, right, in a lot of baking back in the 19th century. Maybe they just used soured milk. That oh, actually could be. Yeah. yeah. But the buttermilk is what I would think would be the I most obvious choice. I would too. And you, that didn't so do it, huh? It, well, again, I'm using commercial buttermilk. So uh, maybe they made their own buttermilk. I don't know. I would think in the early 60s, buttermilk was quite different than it is now. 
That makes the most sense to me. And the kind of buttermilk they were using was tangier than what we have today. That, That's possible. That would be my best guess because I think the sourdough thing is just not reasonable. I guess I can look at recipes for making your own buttermilk. What about adding some sour cream? Yeah. Well, that's the other possibilities. Well, there we go. That's an excellent buttermilk and sour cream. Yeah. That's the other possibility. Yeah. I think I came across a Betty Crocker recipe with sour cream. Yeah. Well, I think that's an excellent suggestion. Yeah. Because that would be tangy. Yeah. And that's an easy thing to do. Yeah, right. yeah I, I would do that. It would be delicious, even yeah. if it wasn't the same. I mean, the right you, one. you want to spend two hours churning your own butter just to get some buttermilk to try buttermilk <laughs> big waffles. I mean, that's a little, that's a little on the extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, sour cream. I think of all the things we've said, sour cream. Okay. All right, and Lori, know. let us know how it goes. Okay, R- report back, will. please. All right. Okay. Give that Thank a shot. you very much. Okay. Okay. Bye bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Terry. Hi, Terry. Where are you calling from? I'm calling from Warminster, Pennsylvania. Okay. I'm calling about making uh, dairy-free ice cream. And I've been doing a little bit of experimenting, either almond cashew blend or a walnut milk. They're the creamiest. I don't like coconut, so coconut milk is out. I'm trying to get as close to real ice cream as I can. I can tell you what I've tried. And if you have any suggestions after that, I'd really appreciate it. Go right ahead. All right. So I've tried nut butters. Peanuts, too strong a flavor. And cashew butter didn't make any difference. What I tried that has worked is egg and gelatin. It's kind of like a you know pudding texture. That's okay. And I've tried grinding flaxseed and chia seeds. That's pretty good. But I'm still wanting to get, get it even better. Do you have any ideas? When you say get it even better, what's wrong with it, what you've been doing? Meaning what's wrong with the texture or the flavor? I can handle it okay. It's just icy. It has like, a, you know, ice crystals in there. So I'd like to get it a little bit creamier. I mean, you want the smallest possible crystals to get the creamiest possible texture. The faster you can freeze it, the better off you are. Are you using an ice cream machine where you have to put the container in the freezer overnight? Right. Those are okay. The problem is, is your freezer, have you got a freezer thermometer? Yes, I do. And is it zero? Between zero and minus 20. Okay. Well, that's not too bad. I mean, if you really want to make great ice cream, you'll have to spend some money, (laughs) like 200 (laughs) plus bucks, to get an electric one. And that'll freeze the contents much faster The faster you freeze, the smaller the crystals, the smoother the ice cream. Once you take the ice cream out of the freezer, you need to get it into a container as fast as possible. So pre-chill that container and get it right in the freezer as soon as possible because some of that stuff starts to melt. That melted ice cream, when it refreezes, will have very large crystals. So the speed at which you go from freezing it in your machine to the freezer is also important. And then finally, fat content. The more fat you have in the ice cream, the better off you are. Right, Sarah? Right. Absolutely. Okay. Thanks, Terry. All right. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. I'm Christopher Kimball, and you're listening to Milk Street Radio. Next up, it's our resident Parisian, Alex Inews. He's the creator of Alex French Guy Cooking on YouTube. Alex, welcome to Milk Street. Hey, how are you? So what what crazy French idea do you have this week? (laughs) I have nothing French in mind, okay? Oh, no. I'm, I, I, ju- I just want to chat with you about cooking in hotel rooms. 
huh, I, that, that's a subject I've never considered. <laughs> so I've been traveling a lot recently uh, and I've been founding myself in situations where I've been eating out way too much to my liking. You see, at first I'm a cook. I like cooking. I, I, like, I like the reassuring, comforting vibe of, of a home-cooked meal. And that is not something, I'm sure you will agree, that you can have very easily in an hotel room. Unless, of course, you think creatively. If you think outside of the box. And that's what I want to bring to the table today. Okay, so, so now what? <laughs> so about the tools you need at first, you, you would probably need a pocket knife, a bit of aluminium foil, for example, uh, uh, teaspoons, you can find them on locations. Um, also, wooden sticks would be quite useful. Now I'm going to go over the main appliances that you can find in an hotel room. Like the coffee maker, obviously, you can make coffee with it. But you can go way, way beyond that. You can make porridge in a coffee maker. <laughs> to, to, to do so, you would just stuff the main uh, container with oatmeal and just turn on, turn on the, the coffee maker. To give an extra layer of flavor, one thing you could do, you could add a tea bag or two in the spot where you are supposed to put ground coffee, right. for example. And then you got flavored oatmeals. Another thing I did with the coffee maker, I stuffed, <laughs> I'm a bit ashamed to say this, but I stuffed the, 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 the place for, for, for ground coffee with vegetables, diced carrots, celery and onions, you know, the holy trinity. Right, right. And then I run the machine and I got the, an absolutely perfect, maybe not absolutely perfect, let's be honest, but a, a very decent bouillon or stock in the main container that is just ready to be poured in, in a cup. And I did that with a coffee maker. So guys, a question. So after you leave the hotel, do they start billing you for destroyed coffee makers as part of your stay? <laughs> it's funny because that is the exact question I'm getting every time I'm telling this story. People are just going to be like, did you at least clean the coffee maker after you, <laughs> you, 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 you left? <laughs> of course, I'm, I'm cleaning everything. So, so there is no okay. traces at all from, from, from what I did. I'm also using an, an, another appliance slash, you know, thing in the, in the hotel room. And that is the iron. Hmm. Now, the iron, obviously, can be a bit dangerous, but if handled properly, I'm able to make a toasted sandwich with this. Yeah, grilled cheese. Yeah. Exactly. You can right. make a, a grilled cheese anytime with, with such an appliance. Basically, what I would do, I would take um, two slices of sandwich bread, I would add two slices of cheese inside, and in the, cen in the very center, I would just place a slice of ham. I would wrap it up in two layers of aluminium foil, and I would just iron the whole thing. Like, probably for, I don't know, five minutes or so. And then when you unwrap it, it's beautiful. You even get that crisp. And, and I love that trick very much. And it allows me just, just to, be, to have the comfort of my hotel room from time to time when I just don't want to step outside. I don't know. It makes you feel at home anywhere you would be. Have you ever had... Uh someone walk into the room while you're ironing your grilled cheese sandwich? No, because I always put the, um, do not the sign on the door, do, do <laughs> not disturb. <laughs> of course. <laughs> so, so, so you have broth, you have oatmeal, you have grilled cheese, uh, anything else? Uh, yes, I do. Uh, I, I've been using the, the hair dryer. So this one is a bit more controversial because in terms of bacteria, I think it's even less food safe than the other two. 
but I've been using the hair dryer to melt some cheese. Hmm. I'm not sure this is appetizing or tantalizing or just disgusting. But anyway, I did that anyway. So uh, I did like a small um, bruschetta. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had few pieces of mozzarella on top of that bruschetta. And I thought about melting them using the hair dryer. And I thought, well, this is just the perfect for the job. <laughs> so so you, th- you, I, your, your next cookbook is going to be fine dining at the Hilton? Maybe. Maybe. Who knows? No, <laughs> I'm, I'm just teaching people to think outside the box. The reason why I'm doing those silly things, you know, besides being a lunatic, is also because I want, I want to bring... Uh, a, a different vision. I want to bring a different point of view on the things that surround us. Like in my kitchen, I'm often using my power drill to just whisk eggs or to, or to power the machines I'm making just because I want people to think. Just because you're in a kitchen following a recipe doesn't mean you have to turn your brain off. Turn it on. So so next time uh, you travel, if you travel to Boston, you're going to invite me over for dinner at your hotel room, right? Yes, uh, and, and you have no right to say no to this invitation. I would take it very bad. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much. Now uh, staying at, uh, at a hotel room can be a culinary adventure. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much. That was Alex Inews, host of Alex French Guy Cooking on YouTube. He's also the author of Just a French Guy Cooking. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or want to binge listen, you can download Milk Street Radio on your favorite podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. There you can find each week's recipe, watch our television show, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks, as always, for listening. Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinsaboff. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by Tube Up Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. <laughs> <laughs>